This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. A woman's brutal assault only a block away from her home brings the whole British probation system into question. This is the Zara Alina story. Hey, Megan. Good morning. Again. <laughs> How are you this morning? I just want to keep pointing out that I'm, I've been a team player. I keep recording in the early mornings for me. <laughs> I am fine. but It's not early. It's, it's early for me o'clock. and I'm fine, but I'm stuffy <laughs> as you can hear. So sorry. No, I think you sound okay. okay. Megan, while I have the longest list of listener suggestions, I have to be honest, today's case was not from that list. This case came up on my newsfeed and I'm always, you know, clicking around and there was something about a particular article on this case that sent me down quite the rabbit hole. Now, I couldn't find a lot of backstory on Zara, but I did find a lot of information about the parole and probation system in the UK. And you know what it reminded me of? What? Do you remember where we went in 2016? When we went to Roxton, yeah. And we actually had, well, we went to a prison there, but we also had a probation officer come and speak to our students and and us. Do you remember that? Yeah, so we co-taught a class on the comparative justice systems between the U.S. and the U.K. Yeah. And this class was amazing. Obviously, the study abroad component was awesome because we went to London. As you mentioned, we got to visit Old Bailey, Mm -hmm. which is their highest court. We went to a prison. We got to hear from a probation officer. But Megan, it had been a while since I really took a look at any of the research we used for that class. And there's been a ton of changes in the UK system recently. Oh. One of the catalysts for change in the UK was cases like Zara Alina's. So I wanted to bring this case to our listeners' attention and use it as a way to talk a little bit about the system in the UK. Wow. Now I'm really interested. Okay, cool. Today's case is about Zara Alina. Zara was a 35-year-old woman living in the East London area of Ilford. As I mentioned, there's very little information available about Zara's background, particularly her early life. And this is really sad to me because she was described by family and friends as being a, quote, kind soul, the sweetest girl you'd ever meet, who would often go out of her way to help others. What we do know is that Zara was an only child, and she was very close to her family, particularly her mother and her grandmother, who resided very nearby to her. I believe they lived just down the block. Zara's family says that from the young age of five, she always knew that she wanted to be a lawyer. So she talked about being a lawyer from that young age of five, which is similar to you, Megan. Didn't you think about being a lawyer from that young age? Yes, I did. Yeah, and Zara did just that. She earned her postgraduate degree in legal practice in 2021, as well as worked for the Crown Prosecution Service in a two-year work placement position. And this was all on the path to become a fully qualified solicitor, which is our version of becoming a lawyer. And Zara was interested in social justice. She supported refugees fleeing violence, and she spent a good portion of her time caring for other people. She was very well loved in her community, and she had many good friends and was known to many people in the area. It was clear that this woman really had everything going for her, and that was until the night of June 26, 2022. 
Oh, wow. This is a very recent case. I don't think I realized that. Okay. Yes, this case is very recent. I think that's probably why I came across it on my newsfeed is because it was so recent. And usually it's interesting because in the U.S., we don't often cover cases that happen so recently because cases take so long to go to trial and to get, you know, disposed of in our system. But in the U.K., things move at a different pace. On this evening, Zara had gone out with a friend to a local nightclub and she decided that she would walk home when their night was over. Now, most women know that walking anywhere alone could be a risk, particularly when it's late at night in a city. So some people might judge this as a strange decision on Zara's part. But according to everyone who knew her, she loved walking and specifically walking by herself. I mean, even when there was a nearby bus, she often opted to walk. Plus, we would never blame a woman for choosing to walk by herself somewhere. Absolutely not. We never would blame a woman for walking by herself. But the reason I bring this up is because it was noted by close friends that she always expressed uneasiness taking cabs because she didn't like the idea of getting in the car with a stranger. And second, and most importantly, Megan, she believed that women should be able to walk home at night and be independent. And she was determined to do so. I don't blame her. And I also feel uncomfortable getting in the car with, um, I had a bad experience with a cab driver that I jumped out once and I feel really uncomfortable with it as well. So I don't blame her. Friends and family say that Zara was well aware of the dangers that women faced when walking alone, especially as there had been a severe uptick in crimes against women in the area. And we will highlight some of those crimes a little later on. So the streets that Zara took home that evening, they were brightly lit by street lamps the whole way. And she had her cell phone with her in case of an emergency. Now, the path she took home was very direct and one that she knew very well. However, on that evening, Megan, she had no idea that someone was silently following her. Mm. Around 2.15 a.m., Zara had almost made it home. She was just a few feet from her front door when she was grabbed by the back of the neck and dragged to a nearby driveway by an unknown assailant. The level of violence in this attack is unparalleled. And I don't want to go too deeply into the details because it is so atrocious, so I'm just going to keep it vague. We know that the attacker sexually assaulted Zara. She was beat around the head and neck, and then literally she was stomped on. Both her body and her face was stomped on with extreme force, And this was done before the assailant stole her cell phone, keys, and handbag. Something we would find out later that is just so haunting, Megan, is three minutes into the attack, Zara's friend texted her to see if she made it home okay. Now, this just shows how close she was to home, that those three minutes would have meant that she made it home safe already. Such a tragedy. But of course... Zara did not. This horrible assault lasted nine minutes and resulted in 46 separate injuries, which included severe blunt force trauma to her head, deep lacerations to her scalp, bruising to her lips, eyes, nose, and jaw, and genital injuries. It's awful. The severity of the violence also caused a traumatic brain injury. Around 2.45 a.m., a passerby discovered Zara, who was still alive. She was partially naked and struggling to breathe. Oh, This person immediately called emergency services while performing CPR on her. After being treated by paramedics, she was taken to Royal London Hospital, where unfortunately she was pronounced dead from her injuries shortly before 10 a.m. This was a mere eight hours after the brutal attack, and her death was quickly ruled a homicide. Okay, so the big question, Megan, how did this happen? 
Zara had no known enemies and no known ex-lovers who would have wanted to hurt her so badly, as far as, of course, those closest to her knew. No. I mean, this seems like a stranger assault to me. Yeah, so, you know, was this just a robbery that had turned violent, or was there something else going on? Luckily for investigators, there were plenty of CCTVs all down the route that Zara had walked home that night. Mm. And Megan, the footage is chilling. The surveillance shows Zara walking confidently down a quiet, deserted street while a man trailed her a few feet behind. Now, this is hard to watch knowing what happens a few minutes later. And this video will be posted on our YouTube channel so everyone can take a look at it. And I do want to say that we are not posting the actual assault. I'm just talking about posting leading up to it where you see this man trailing her. The other thing you could see in the video, there was a car or two that drove past And there were even two people on the other side of the street who in the video seemingly looked towards Zara and this man. But of course, it's unclear if they felt that she was in danger or not. But the CCTV did not catch them alerting her of the person following her. I wonder how long before she was assaulted that happened. I mean, within seconds. Was he waiting? Then did it even have a regard for the fact that there were people on the street? Like, as you could see in the video, it's almost as if he didn't notice them. He was just focused in. On Zara, it almost seemed as if he did not even know anything was going on around him. Now, other surveillance in the area would show the same man earlier that evening stalking and harassing several other women. Mm. And this is within the hours before he attacked Zara. There's even footage showing him chasing down a woman before losing her in an alley. Again, these videos are chilling. It looks like he's like stalking prey. Yeah. In fact, there's one time he even followed a woman into a store. Yeah. And then when she came out, he continued to follow her. This guy's a sexual predator. I can already, you know, just from the little information you've you've shared, I can tell uh, that he's a predator. Yeah, very clearly we have a violent sexual predator here. There were other surveillance videos that showed him being thrown out of a pub that evening around 11 p.m. You know, this tracked with much of what we would see on the later surveillance footage because he looks visibly intoxicated on camera. So who was this man and why had he attacked Zara? Well, unfortunately for Zara's friends and family, the nature of the attack remained vague, as did the identification of the assailant. I mean, her death outraged and shocked the community. And a week after the attack, hundreds of mourners came together to, quote, walk Zara home. Oh, wow. I know. And this, again, will also be on YouTube. There's video of this walk as well. You have supporters, mourners who wore white, carried flowers and photos of Zara, and they remained completely silent for the duration of the walk as they followed her route from the club to her home and they left memorials on her porch. Mm. Anja Mouj, a co-chair of London Black Women's Project, was a liaison with Zara's family during the walk. She spoke to the crowd before the vigil got underway, saying, quote, Grandma, mother, aunties, cousins, friends, family have all asked me to thank you from the bottom of their heart to do this walk with us to take Zara, Natasha, Alina home, the steps that she could not take. It's in touching distance. She could see her home almost, but she could not walk there. As investigators continued to identify Zara's assailant, they ruled the reason for her murder as an opportunistic stranger attack, similar to what you had suspected, Megan. A forensic examination of the crime scene did uncover bloody fingerprints, but due to the poor quality of the blood smear, the prints initially failed to provide a match on the national database. 
However, luckily, Megan, there was that CCT footage, and it was extensive. Now, the footage not only showed the assailant stalking other women on the night of Zara's attack, but it also caught the attack itself on camera. So all the police needed to do was identify the man they saw in the video. Now, based on video footage of the man, investigators were able to narrow it down to six potential suspects. I'm not sure exactly how they did this. Mm -hmm. Maybe asking people in the area that night, you know, showing his his face is very clear. I was going to say, if his face is clear, he's been in all these places. And I have a feeling he's got type he's known to the police. This probably wouldn't have been that hard. Yeah. And again, though, they did have six potential suspects. I think they did good police work here by, you know, making sure that they did have the right guy here. So what they did is they took these six potential suspects and they took the fingerprints from the potential suspects and sent it to a fingerprint expert who compared each one to that partial bloody print that was found. There was a positive match. The owner of the print was 29-year-old Jordan McSweeney from Dagenham, East London. Once again, Megan, as you suspected, the cops knew exactly who this man was and they knew where to find him. They had CCT footage that also caught him returning to a caravan, which we would call like a camper or a trailer, Mm -hmm. on a fairground that he worked at. So shortly after Zara's attack, they see Jordan on video returning to the fairground where he works. Now, he was asleep in his caravan when police arrived, and the police described him as confused and dazed. As investigators went through the trailer, they recovered some of Zara's bloodstained clothing, and they swiftly arrested Jordan McSweeney for her rape and murder. Investigators noted that McSweeney was extremely quiet in their interview, refusing to answer questions, and he actually yawned at one point and told them he was bored. That doesn't surprise me either. And let me guess, I mean, I I think the big reveal here is going to be that he was on probation or parole. And that's why it led to changes because of what he did on supervision. Yeah. And I, I think, as you'll see, the issue goes a little deeper than that. Okay. Now, as I mentioned, he was very known to law enforcement. He had 28 past convictions for 69 separate offenses that spanned over 17 years. Yep. These offenses included burglary, theft of a vehicle, criminal damage, assaulting police officers, attacking members of the public while on bail. I mean, this guy has a long rap sheet. He also had a history of violence towards ex-partners, and he had a restraining order for domestic violence against a woman in 2021. But Megan, here's the kicker. McSweeney had been released from prison on medium-risk probation only nine days before he assaulted and killed Zara Alina. McSweeney's string of convictions and his history of violence would become a huge point of contention during his sentencing, and it moved a lot of community organizations to begin petitioning the government for action. Mm. Now, based on his record behind bars, in which he had threatened other inmates and correction officers, and on one occasion had even been found with a weapon— It is so shocking that the probation committee felt that he was a medium risk rather than a high risk offender, which we'll dig into in just a minute. But before we do that, Megan, I want to do a little comparative analysis between the UK and the US on their probation and parole terminology because there are a few slight differences. Okay. Now, in the UK, getting probation means that you can leave prison or be released from custody before the end of your sentence. But of course, you're kept on supervision. There, it's known as being on license. Mm. Now, this is a bit different from the U.S. 
in that we consider probation to be what someone would get in lieu of prison time. Mm-hmm. And this is when an offender would be checking in with a probation officer over a period of time instead of going to custody. For McSweeney, he was serving a sentence and he was released early. So in the U.S., we'd refer to this as parole, not as probation. So just keep that slight difference in mind as we move forward. I don't understand why they're releasing this guy early. He's like the exact person that you should not release early. You're right. And we're going to talk about what factors were included in his risk assessment and where things could have gone wrong. There is another slight difference when we talk about the systems between the U.S. and the U.K. is that in the U.S., the state oversees probation, except, of course, if it's the federal government. Uh, Megan, you were a federal probation officer. So, of course, you know that Mm -hmm. our probation is someone checking in with an officer again in lieu of going to jail. Then the U.S. Department of Corrections of a given state would handle the parole And again, parole is being released early. In the UK, it seems that their probation department handles what we would consider parole, supervision after release from prison. Okay. Okay, now let's get back to McSweeney's long rap sheet. Some reports say that McSweeney's medium risk assessment was botched by the probation board, especially when we consider the fact that he missed several appointments with his probation officers. So other than his violent history, he also was not compliant. Even worse, Megan, in this case, the board delayed sending him back to jail. There actually was an order to recall him to custody on June 22nd. However, his probation manager did not sign off on the recall until June 24th. Now, a day later, on June 25th, the police did try to locate him to arrest him and send him back to prison. So they went to his last known address, but he was not there. And I'm not sure how hard they looked for him. But the very next day, Zara Alina would be brutally murdered, of course, causing, rightfully so, a public outcry. This is so frustrating. It reminds me also of Anaya Blanchard. We covered that yes. case. He, You know, the offender was a serious offender out on bail and staying at a hotel. Just, you know, these are the people who should not be in the community. It's very frustrating. Yep. And the burning question here is, how did a person as knowingly violent and dangerous as Jordan McSweeney get away with murder? Yeah. When interviewed, the chief inspector of probation explained that the probation staff involved in McSweeney's assessments were, quote, experiencing unmanageable workloads made worse by high staff vacancy rates. And this matches several of the whistleblower reports coming out of the UK who say that the caseloads are unmanageable. Yeah. Just to illustrate how bad things were. According to the BBC, London was under the most pressure at around 120% of its capacity on average. And this was followed by other regions that were at 118% to capacity. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, they reported that more than 400 probation officers were working at 160% of their capacity or more, and some over 200%. This is not an uncommon theme in probation and parole, and we experienced the same thing. I didn't actually personally experience very much of that, but my supervision officers did, so I know that this this happens. It's not okay. And because these caseloads are so unbelievably high, it causes serious burnout and work-related mental health issues on the people that are working, and many were quitting in droves around this time. Yeah. So they're understaffed, and the people that are there are overworked. Right. But obviously, this doesn't provide justice or closure for Zara's family, who told The Guardian that the probation service and government, quote, have blood on their hands. Mm. Damien Hines, who's the justice minister, the justice minister is equivalent to the U.S. attorney general. 
they call it the Ministry of Justice. It's basically the British government's department that's responsible for criminal justice policy. Mm-hmm. So again, just a minor difference to highlight there. Mm-hmm. So Damien Hines publicly agreed with the family saying, quote, this was a despicable crime and I apologize unreservedly to Zara Alina's family for the unacceptable failings in this case. We are taking immediate steps to address the serious issues raised by the Jordan McSweeney case. This includes mandatory training to improve risk assessments, implementing new processes to guarantee the swift recall of offenders, and we have taken disciplinary action where appropriate. And unfortunately, it doesn't solve the problem of case overloads. And that's really at the core of one of the the problems here is that that probation officers are sometimes so overloaded that they are not able to devote enough time to cases. I I think your policy analysis students would be able to tell us, but this also brings up another point. They're passing swift policies in response to an emotionally charged event, which almost never, pretty much never results in solid policy. You need like a a really good problem-oriented approach. You need to analyze the problem, understand all the different contributing factors. It's it shouldn't be, you know, a swift reaction if it's going to be effective. Absolutely. So what happens with Jordan McSweeney while awaiting trial? Well, there was a series of canceled court hearings where he avoided psychological assessments. At times he refused to leave his prison cell, and he was also suspected of attempting to disrupt court proceedings. I wasn't able to find details about these allegations, so I don't have any further information. But I think the point here is just that he was not cooperative. However, despite these setbacks, Jordan McSweeney pled guilty to murder and sexual assault, and he was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum term of 38 years. Now, in the UK, a guilty plea typically leads to a one-third reduction in sentence. Now, that's the sentence that you could have received if you went to trial. So I think that's where the 38 years came from. So that's a little bit different than our plea bargaining system Mm -hmm. because it's not kind of as open. There's a little more structure to their plea bargain system. So clearly he did not go to trial, but he did sit before a judge for sentencing. And during his sentencing, the judge remarked, quote, the defendant had the physical advantages of strength and surprise in everything else. She was better than him. She was talented, spirited, intelligent, and kind. I find no mitigation. He has never expressed any remorse or demonstrated empathy for the outcome of his behavior. The reason why he mentioned no mitigation is because McSweeney attempted to get a reduced sentence under mitigation in that he says he accepted responsibility for his actions. But, you know, whether he truly feels remorse is unclear and, quite frankly, doubtful given his history. As McSweeney was being sentenced, demonstrators from the charity Refuge, which helps women and children overcome physical and emotional abuse, and the campaign group Reclaim These Streets, gathered outside the court to demand an end to violence against women and girls. And beyond the general atrocity of Zara Alina's violent murder, these activists had good reason to be petitioning. Because, Megan, in the months before and after Zara's assault, several other women suffered similar fates on the streets of London. Mm. The first one that I want to briefly highlight is Bibba Henry and Nicole Smallman. In June of 2020, these two sisters, now they were aged 46 and 27. Now, they were stabbed to death in a northwest London park. They were out celebrating one of the sisters' birthday with friends They were the last to leave, probably cleaning up, and a 19-year-old man just brutally attacked and murdered these women. Now, in this case, there was 
a public outcry in this case because there was not a lot of attention given to these murders. Luckily, after going to trial, the assailant in this case was sentenced to a minimum of 35 years. But then, Megan, not long after, in March of 2021, a young woman by the name of Sarah Everard was walking home when she was kidnapped by a man who was an off-duty police officer. Now, in this situation, the woman was handcuffed and thrown into a vehicle saying that she had violated COVID curfew oh my because gosh. it was during COVID and there was a curfew at the time. Unfortunately, this man was not taking her in for a curfew violation. He raped, strangled, burned, and disposed of her body in a nearby area. Oh my gosh. Yeah. He ended up admitting responsibility and he did plead guilty and he was sentenced to a whole life order, which is the same as life without parole for in the U.S. We call it life without parole. He was a police officer? He was a police officer. Oh. Yeah. Okay. And the last one I want to highlight is Sabina Nessa, who in September of 2021, she was walking through a local park on a way to meet a friend in Southeast London, and she was attacked and beaten to death. Mm. Many criticize the media in this case and investigators because they say that this case was not given the proper attention. But luckily, the assailant in this case was also brought to justice and he was sentenced to 36 years. These are just a few cases to highlight the issue, but in general, violence against women is on the rise in the UK, and it's currently estimated that one in three women over the age of 16 were subjected to at least one form of harassment in 2022, and this number increases to two in three for women aged 16 to 34. Now, overall, you have an estimated 1.6 million women aged 16 to 74 who experienced domestic abuse in England and Wales in 2022. And of this abuse, 81 women were killed in domestic homicides, which, of course, is murder committed between intimate partners. Now, we don't just see this in the UK. We see this really everywhere, that numbers have worsened due to the COVID-19 pandemic because we see measures like lockdowns mm -hmm. disrupting access to vital support services and, you know, almost forces people in domestic violence situation to be stuck with their abusers. It seemingly was quite bad where you're describing. So in, in London or in the UK, were there any other factors or was it this was primarily attributed to COVID measures? Of course, there are many people with many opinions. Yeah. You know, some people are going to fault, you know, their system, just like people fault our criminal justice system here. Right. Some people will fault, of course, probation, as we'll be dissecting in just a minute. I don't know that, of course, there's any one or two factors that can help us understand this. Okay. But what's clear is that, you know, there has been this uptick, and I think it's finally getting the attention it deserves. Okay. Okay, so let's break some of this stuff down. First, let's take a look at Jordan McSweeney. Now, there's little available about his youth, but it is known that he grew up in a domestic violence situation. One of his first memories was of his father trying to drown his mother in a bathtub. So, you know, this is certainly horrific, and we can understand how this would affect his understanding of domestic relationships and his response to strain in relationships. Yeah, I, I would suspect that he had a really bad start. And I would imagine there's a lot more yeah. that went on in his, yeah. you know, childhood. But what else can help us understand, Jordan? I think, Megan, you'd probably agree that you know, this was a sexual predator. I mean, he was seen in these videos stalking women like prey. And it almost seems like he didn't even have a type. He was just looking for anyone in which he could prey upon. Yeah. 
I think it's clear that this is a chronic offender Mm -hmm. who's a sexual predator. Absolutely. He's also, by the rap sheet, he's a queer criminal, so he's versatile in his offending. It's not just sexual Mm -hmm. crimes, but the sexual crimes, I'm sure, are his way of, you know, trying to exert more power, feel more powerful than he is. Mm -hmm. So we use the term sexual predator. There's sex offenders and there's sexual predators, and there are differences. So sex offenders in general can be deterred and are not necessarily predatory on, you know, multiple victims. They oftentimes, if they get caught with one, you know, one victim, they will stop their crimes. They often know their victims. It might be, you know, an acquaintance or unfortunately a family member, not diminishing the severity of it, but just letting you know, whereas predators are usually hunting multiple victims. They're strangers. They're going to use violence. They're angrier and they're not deterrable. So there is a difference here. Mm -hmm. And we could probably go through other criminological theories to try to understand Jordan, but I don't think we have a complete picture of who Jordan was. The only other theory that I think might be worth noting is possibly differential reinforcement, which talks about based on the punishments people receive, they're more likely to continue behavior. It seems like he's someone who kept getting away with bad behavior and almost given a slap on the wrist. So maybe he felt that he was invincible in the eyes of, you know, the justice system. I mean, look, he kept getting away with crime. So if you keep getting away with it and you're not punished enough, it's just reinforcing, hey, I can do this. I don't think he felt maybe invincible, but I think he also felt powerless, which is why he's predatory. So, like, I I actually think of control balance. Yep. This is a guy who feels like he's got no power and no control, and he's going to take back his power and control by assaulting women who, you know, don't see it coming. I think that's a good point. So I want to take time to talk about the UK risk assessment for probation. So as I mentioned, the probation board gave McSweeney a medium rating, which is why he got out of his prison sentence early. So I want to unpack what these assessments look like. Okay. So before we do that, we have to first understand how risk assessment works. And there are a number of technical requirements for assessment tools. And this is the same whether you're in the UK or the U.S., When we talk about assessment tools, they should be reliable. Reliability simply means that they should be consistent between assessors. They need to be valid, which means that they need to identify the most relevant risks and needs. They also need to be predictive of future offending. And all assessment tools should be continually developed. And this is to ensure that they reflect the developments that we see in the literature. So in other words, they need to be evidence-based while still supporting practitioners and current policy and practices. So there have been four broad historical waves of probation service user assessment in the UK. And as you'll be able to see, Megan, they're very similar to the history of risk assessment in the United States. Mm -hmm. So the first generation of risk assessment, and we're talking like 1900s to 1970s. I know this is a big window, but during this time, assessment was solely based on unstructured practitioner judgment, something we call (laughs) clinical judgment in the United States. You remember this from grad school, right? I do. Yeah. When I was writing this up, it it was giving me like all these flashbacks to all of my classes in grad school. Yeah. Now, this approach was found to be of poor predictive value because it was subject to biases and therefore it was inconsistent. Right. So this approach would often lead to poor planning and poor implementation. The second generation, we're talking now 1970s to 1990s, used what we called actuarial scales. So this means that it was data-driven and it could perform well in terms of predictive validity, which is good, 
But just like everything, you're going to have the good and the bad. The issue here was that most actuarial approaches do not indicate the nature, severity, and imminence of reoffending, right. nor do they predict risk after treatment. But it's okay. We're getting closer, right? Yeah. These iterations each get us a little closer. And then the third generation, which spans, you know, the late 90s to the 2000s, incorporated dynamic risk assessment. Now, this made factors amenable to changes such as lifestyle, employment, accommodations, attitudes. Generally speaking, this was just a more holistic and personalized and I'd say more analytical approach to assessment. So the UK is now in the fourth generation of risk assessment tools, and these are more systematic and comprehensive. They are based on what is known as risk-need-responsivity principles. So these fourth-generation assessment tools integrate elements of case management, such as intervention planning and the implementation, along with monitoring and reviewing. As in the U.S., there are general assessment tools and specialized ones. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you were mentioning sex offenders. So there are certain risk assessment tools used for sex offenders or domestic violence perpetrators or people that have various forms of mental illness or learning disabilities. And, of course, there are also general psychological assessment tools that we've touched on in other episodes. All right. So that's a basic overview of how the U.K. probation assessment has changed and grown over time. Now, currently, I mentioned the UK is in fourth generation, and they're using something called the Offender Assessment System, and it was developed in 2001. And this is the system that they used when they were assessing Jordan Sweeney. So within this new system, the following eight factors are scored as criminogenic needs. Now, these are accommodation, education, training and employment, relationships, lifestyle, drug use, alcohol use, thinking and behavior, and attitudes. So as you could see, Megan, most of these are quite subjective. Based on the little bit that we know about Jordan McSweeney, I think it's easy for us to say, oh, you know, he should have been high risk, right? Because you're looking at, you know, training, employment, education. We don't have this information. Mm -hmm. We can assume based on what we know about him that there is probably a pattern of unemployment, a pattern of housing instability, a pattern of, you know, alcohol, drug misuse. Right. But I would assume that probation had much more information than we have. Yeah. But we don't know what we don't know. So I just think it's important to understand what factors go into an assessment, but also at the same time recognize that while we can assume Mm -hmm. that Jordan McSweeney should have been high risk based on his background, we do not have his whole file. Okay. I hope you appreciated that little um, risk assessment 101. Of course. Megan, what do you think about his sentence? 38 years. So that means that he'll be in his 70s, you know, when he is eligible for release. I think he should serve a life sentence because I don't think he is any way amenable to rehabilitation. Although in his 70s, he will have likely aged out of crime. But no, I just like I think he should remain in prison. He's one of the, you know, very few serious chronic offenders that pose a real threat to society, in my opinion. Yeah. And I tend to agree with that, Megan. You know, although he will be past the offending age when he could potentially be released, I think many would agree that a whole life sentence is appropriate in this case. Yeah. Now, the big question is, was this avoidable? Yes. You know, we talked about the fact that probation was overworked and overloaded and then maybe things were able to slip through the cracks. But what do we do about this? Do you think that adding more procedures and rules would make the probation system better? Or would it just complicate and create more of a burnout for staff who already are having these high caseloads? 
It's clear that a reform is needed, I think. However, as I said before, I really think it needs a serious systems analysis to find out what are the factors that are contributing here. What's the problem? What's the goal? What's the design? It needs to go through the policy steps of, you know, planning and change. So I don't think just reaction, add more, you know, procedures, add more of this, you know, just because we want to do something. I don't think that's the proper response here. I agree. As you talked about before, there shouldn't be a knee jerk or there shouldn't be an emotional response because then it's setting the new policy up for failure. Exactly. You know, I do think it's a valid point that if overwork and overburden is the issue, creating more rules and regulations may not be the best way to go. Why do you think Zara was targeted? Because as we teach in our classes, you know, victimology, you know, the study of why people are victimized, we can use theories to understand why certain people are victimized. And then it's not always random, wrong place, wrong time. But I think in this example, it really might just be a wrong place, wrong time. I think so as well. As you said, he was he was out looking to assault someone and there were, you know, possible victims, but, it, you know, the timing just didn't come together. He was kicked out of a bar. And so I think this really was, unfortunately, just wrong time, wrong place for this young woman. Yeah, it's such a tragic story, but I hope there are some things that we can learn from this case. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really showcases that, you know, even if you put better streetlights in, even if you put CCTV, women are not safe. The problem is so deep here because you have men who feel a sense of power and entitlement over women and their bodies. This really gets at a broader cultural issue. It does. It's hard to change culture, right? It's, it's really difficult. It's really complicated. And it takes a long time. And while we need government change and better tracking of assailants who assault or, you know, commit these types of predatory crimes against women. I mean, the fact is that many men in the UK and really all over the world seem to think that violence against women is okay, And that seems to be where this core issue lies. Mm -hmm. I hope that Zara's story can help make our listeners feel strongly about ending violence against women. And I'm talking about the UK, the US and really globally. Mm -hmm. So if anyone would like to get involved or learn more, there are several organizations that you could check out. Nviolenceagainstwomen.org.uk is a group of organizations and experts from across the UK, and they work together to end violence against women and girls in all forms. And then there's womensaid.org.uk, and this is a grassroots federation that works together to provide life-saving services in England and build a future where domestic abuse is simply not tolerated. UNwomen.org is also a really good source. They have 10 ways that you can help end violence against women with different links to different organizations. And then here in the U.S., we have the Office on Violence Against Women, which is a federal agency, and they aim to reduce violence against women by helping victims of domestic violence, dating violence, sexual assault, and stalking. You know, I hope that this tragic story serves as a catalyst for people to get involved in, you know, this movement to help end violence against women. I do as well. Thanks for providing all those resources, too. That's great. I hope you all learned a lot today and we thank you all for listening. And we hope to catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. 
For more information, visit patreon.com slash women in crime. Sources for today's episode include bbc.com, nationalworld.com, The Telegraph, The Guardian, justiceinspectorates.gov.uk, womansaid.org.uk, and bja.ojp.gov.